Welcome to the Freedom Chasers podcast, where we bring you interviews and discussions that share the stories, successes, goals, and dreams of real estate agents and investors pursuing a life of purpose and freedom. Today, we're here with Amit Kapoor. He is the principal of Rama Group International. Amit, I wanted to thank you so much for jumping on the show. We'd love to just dive right into it. So why don't you just kick it off by telling us one of your craziest real estate stories or transactions that you've ever faced? Yeah, I think, uh, I, I, first off, thank you both for having me. Um, it's a pleasure to be on here. Love the description you mm. gave. Um, you know, it's really funny. We are in the acquisition um, business. We, we tend to buy a lot of properties that have gone through an entire life cycle. And, uh, and so I think some of the craziest stories center around when we go out there and diligence a property before buying it, what we tend to find. Mm -hmm. And you know, I think we've seen every level of inept as well as aptitude when it comes to properties uh, and, and their current conditions. But I think the one that sticks out the most was was not only was this property a single family home teardown, um, and what I mean is it was to the mm. studs. Uh, but when you walked in uh, and 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 went through that false flooring and and plywood, you you would never have expected to see a single set room that was catered specifically to forty. <laughs> you know, typically. When you see these properties that are completely torn down and essentially demolished, you don't think, you know, personal goods would survive that demolition. And uh, we found an entire room surrounded by two by fours open to the air uh, with uh, with false floors. Um, and then it was t just floor to ceiling, um, you know, just floor to ceiling size goods mm -hmm. in there and boxes filled mm -hmm. with old audio tape, baseball cards, uh, just things that you would never imagine. Um, and, and so what that tells me constantly is that every time you wake up and you go into one of these properties, uh, you just never know what to expect. I think that's the coolest thing about real estate and just property diligencing in general. Cool. And just to break down some of these terms, because you're obviously a very sophisticated investor. So diligence, right? You're referring to the period of time you have in a contract to inspect the property before you make a final decision. And so when you're talking about a false floor, there might be investors listening to this that don't, they don't even know what that means, right? Can you kind of describe what false floor means? And, and even what you said earlier about the, the full sales cycle, can you describe that? Absolutely. So to your point about diligence, yes. I mean, you have pre-contract diligence and you have post-contract diligence. Pre-contract diligence, where you actually go out there, view the property, um, you know, do sort of a, an analysis on the costs associated with fixing it up, rehabilitating it, uh, and putting it on the market, um, and then you utilize whatever your inputs are to define a an, an offer price. Post-contract is once you've come to contract, there's an attorney review period. Within that attorney review period, you can do inspections. Um, and, and try to find things that might be hidden by the naked eye. Um, fortunately for us, uh, in that example that I gave you and many of the properties that we look at, uh, we don't really go through inspections because the notion of our purchase uh, basically is with that, with that idea that we're going to tear it down or, or remove it all the way down to the studs if it not, isn't already at that stud. So that's sort of the diligence stage of things. A false floor essentially is a piece of plywood that's on the ground 
tapered to another piece of plywood, uh, the effect of removing that, which would lead to either soil <laughs> or if it's on a slab, cement. So um, it's, it's, you know, it's, it's exactly what it says. It's, it's a false floor. Um, and it's, you know, it's interesting to see, you know, properties in all different types of conditions. But the reality is that the sales type cycle for us, um, especially being an equity purchaser, is that once we make that offer, we're pretty quick, quick to mm. close. We go through attorney review periods. We never waive that, but we do oftentimes waive inspection. And uh, within 10 to 15 days with the title company getting all its, its, all of its paperwork together, uh, going through its process, uh, clearing title, uh, getting all the water documents together um, and transferring ownership, we essentially end up taking about two weeks to close. Beautiful. Kind of walk us through your journey. Like what led you to the real estate game? Because I know you're a CFO of another company. Like you've got a lot of different things going on. What what draws you to real estate? Yeah. So after, after high school, I uh, went to college. After college, I got my accounting and marketing degree. Um, and I started focusing on public accounting. Um, you know, it, it was it was a hot industry coming out of college, uh, and this was back in 2001. Um, and the real notion was that I felt there was no better way of understanding business um, than really tapering into and diving deep into the financials of companies. And so really, really granularly and meticulously looking at income statement and balance sheet items that probably are either perplexing or boring to a lot of people. Uh, that sort of became my forte really quickly. And, um, and that focus sort of grew into understanding margins, margin support, cost economics, uh, cost accounting, and uh, contribution margin. And, and I, what I liked about that was it really gave you a framework of business and how the business world works in general. What I disliked about it, though, was that it was very cookie cutter. And we had a formula. We followed that formula. And as that formula continued to develop, there were certain nuances that added to the creativity. But the reality of it was, was it was, you know, it was almost the same each, each, uh, each audit that we went through. And so uh, I knew that it wasn't for me, but I knew the information was valuable. Mm. So I, I decided to venture into small business and started outsourcing marble and granite from other countries into the U.S. And I started doing that with uh, specific developers um, in, in sort of just developing that business acumen uh, and, and the interest that I had in their business models, I started looking into their P&Ls and, and, and balance sheets and they were, uh, they were, I was fortunate enough for them to be willing to share it with me. And so what I noticed was that I was in the wrong business hmm. really quickly. Um, supplying a builder is one thing, becoming a builder is another. Um, and so uh, I, I decided to make some sort of passive investments that yielded some uh, profit benefit. And that was sort of my gateway into developing. Mm. Um, so, so post, um, you know, post those investments, I started my own fund. Uh, it, it originally started growing through word of mouth. Um, and then once that word of mouth getting started getting even uh, uh, into a larger bandwidth of, of individuals that had interest, I decided really quickly that I had to formalize my process. So, um, so the fund started growing in size. I went back to school, uh, went back to Northwestern for my MBA, 
focused on finance uh, and entrepreneurship there as well. Grew my database of investors um, and the fund started to snowball from there. Um, so I would say my interest summarized would be understanding business, the profit side of things, the, the income statement and balance sheet side of things, the risks associated with it um, and the margins, and then, and then applying it into a business that interested you. Uh, and, and for me, it was construction development and, and, and making something that's bigger than, than me or than the company. Yeah. And would you say that that interest was more based on how successful these people are or actual sheer interest in developing properties? Yeah. You know, the word success is a loaded word in my opinion. Uh, I could, I could introduce you to a lot of people that have made a lot of money, but aren't successful because they don't have balance or happiness. Um, so for me, you know, I think it was about doing something that was more visible and beneficial, um, regardless of the, I would say the benefit of the profit in the business that I was in prior to that. Um, and, and, you know, with any business comes a lot of risk as well. So you can make a lot of money or lose a lot of money. Um, but there was that sort of back end support that real estate is a tangible asset. It has leveraging capabilities. Uh, it always has an inherent amount of value in it. And so when push comes to shove, despite market resonances or market dips or highs, you can always fall back on an asset to support yourself. Um, so I would say the success uh, aspect wasn't really what attracted me. It was the, 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 the ability for them to make a difference mm -hmm. and for that difference to be visible. Very cool. So you could essentially show your kids or people, you know, hey, like that building that was a piece of garbage two years ago. And now look at it. I've literally done that. <laughs> I have a seven-year-old son, uh, an 11 year old daughter. And, um, you know, they've, they've come to site inspections. My daughter, the first time she saw a home that I built from the inside, she was four years old and my son was two. Uh, and they, you know, they voluntarily came. Um, mm. and so, you know, my, my daughter's four years old, older than my son. So she saw, you know, she saw what I was doing before he did, but, um, but even at such a young age, they couldn't believe that a human, they just couldn't grasp the understanding that a human can put together an edifice, mm -hmm. uh, that provides some level of, you know, um, of support <laughs> and, uh, and, and safe haven. So, um, so it was really cool to see. Uh, people of that age, you know, kids of that age be impacted by what you're doing. Totally. So, so yeah, literally that was, that was, uh, that had a lot to do with what I liked about, about the industry. Yeah. That's so much fun. I'm second generation. So, I mean, I, I kind of remember watching that kind of stuff growing up. So it's really cool to pass that on to your kids, especially when you're, you're, you're building something as, as large as the, the projects that you're taking on. It's really, really cool. So let's, let's talk about some of the challenges that you faced while you were building this fund. I mean, I'm sure there were many, many roadblocks along the way. Can we get into a few of those and like kind of how you overcame them? Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, one of the first challenges is I think I started the fund at a very young age. Um, and in doing so, it, it really started by word of mouth. And so, uh, you know, the question inherently comes up is that, hey, what are you doing? What do you do for a living? Um, and when you have these conversations, I think the cool thing about the industry of real estate development is I think a lot of people want to be a part of it, but they don't either don't have the time, the expertise 
or the bandwidth to, to handle such a structure. Um, and so it was constantly figuring out how do I resonate um, with an investor and my business model resonate with an investor uh, over some of these larger funds uh, that have institutional support. Um, and so the reality was that I felt that if I created a sense of emotion with these investors to the properties, I could differentiate myself. So uh, one of the things was our fund focused on transparency. And so when you invested in a fund, you didn't invest in the fund vehicle, but you actually invested in a joint venture with that particular property. So you were able to see your money grow with the property from start to finish. Um, there was no limitation to when you could come out and see the impact, the, the, um, you know, the, the stages of development that you invariably go through. Um, and so that resonated, I think, with investors. Um, and the other thing was that I wasn't going to attract large institutional checks to start with. And so the support of high net worth individuals was, was uh, a, a uh, you know, imperative part of uh, my business, uh, the structure of my business. And it was actually the impetus for my growth. And so uh, lowering the check size, the minimum check size was another aspect that I had to work on and, uh, and really find a balance between having enough capital, uh, but yet meeting the threshold of investment capability of these investors that we were targeting. So from the start, those were challenges that we had to overcome um, and that led to more institutional support because these high net worths were connected with institutions as they grew in their uh, professional careers. Um, it led to fund of fund supports as well, um, family office support. And I think that was the really cool thing about it um, is it started sort of as a vision of, yeah, we could use more capital and it grew into, yes, we have a defined structure mm. uh, that benefits investors. Um, some of the challenges that we faced thereafter um, is, is more so during the COVID time, um, during the time of March of 2020, uh, all the way through, I'd say the latter, latter part of 2021, you know, and, and everyone faced sort of global supply chain issues and, and cost increases, you know, lumber at one point went up by 4,000%. Mm -hmm. you know, so just to put things in perspective, yep. you know, if you have a $20,000 budget on lumber for a project, a 400% increase would mean that budget now rises to $80,000. Mm -hmm. A 4,000% increase means that budget now lands at $800,000. So we're not talking about small deltas, right? So navigating through those waters was extremely difficult. And transparently, we had a lot of support from our investors. Um, and sometimes we didn't, you know, and so we had to, we had to sort of go through those highs and lows um, amongst our investor base. Um, but we also had to deal with, sub, you know, with labor supply. And, um, you know, we had staff members that were with us for seven to 10 years, general contractors, subcontractors that had done dozens of projects with us in the past, um, were very liquid, very successful. And all of a sudden, by April of 2020, they had packed up and left and closed shop. And so, you know, one of the things you have to consider is how do you broaden your horizon with respect to your supply base, uh, your human resource supply, you know, oftentimes it's, it's very uncomfortable to do so, but uh, you just can't get too comfortable or too reliant on a specific source. So um, I would say there were some operating challenges that we had to face uh, 
even at a time where we thought we had learned a lot. Yeah. So I'd love to dive into some of the technical aspects of how you set up your fund, kind of the mindset you went through in determining your model, like what kind of returns you're offering your investors, so on and so forth. Does, does your fund allow you to take on non-accredited or just accredited investors? So if you're kind of speak to the process that you went through to, to set that up. Absolutely. So our fund, I'll answer the first, the last question first. Our fund is filled with accredited investors as well as non-accredited hmm. uh, investors. And, you know, accredited investors have to have a specific net worth. They have to have a specific income level. Um, and so, you know, the beauty of how our fund originated was that we had the support of people who perhaps didn't have the liquidity or disposable income that some of these accredited investors had. So uh, never through our span of our life of the company did we ever think that we would start alienating them at some point. Um, and so we, we have no intention to do so. Um, as far as the structure of the fund, the minimum check size that we request is $80,000. So it's a very low threshold in the grand scheme of things. Um, and the other thing that we wanted to do like I said, was to be very transparent in our process. Um, so our joint venture uh, sort of operating agreements with our investors are tabled specifically to a project uh, and offer support and, uh, and sort of uh, the, the prospectus of that project uh, as a form of profitability for that investor. So investors come in and have a pro rata share of ownerships of those properties profitability centers. So you, so in essence, we are the only real estate fund in the city of Chicago uh, that does not take any sweat equity. Mm. And what we mean by that is if you invest $100,000 in a project that costs $500,000 to make, you own 20% of the profitability of that project. So like um, essentially no GP split. There's no GP split. There's no waterfall split. Whoa. It is strictly what your investment take is, is what your profit take is. Interesting. And, uh, I can see your reaction, Matt. Yeah. <laughs> um, when you, when you break down the finances of that type of structure, that puts a ton of pressure on the GPs. Totally. Uh, and we welcomed it. We welcomed it because what we've seen, what my, you know, my fortunate part of being in the world of finance throughout my, pretty much my entire professional career, I've seen margins. And I've seen where sort of bonuses sit and where contribution of, you know, of, uh, of returns sit. And so when you look at the very low risk, high incentive performances in the past of GPs, um, it just didn't sit well with me. Hmm. And so we wanted to make a change. We wanted to make a difference. Um, and that was something that we really, really focused on. And so, um, so that was, I think, the most disruptive part of our model. Totally. Uh, and it was really hard for in, individual investors to sort of understand. And I think it was hard for some of our competition to stomach. Well, yeah, and I want to dive into this. So, because I'm not a GP on any projects, but I get to interact with a fair bit of GPs. So this is definitely the first time that I've heard, generally speaking, of people not running a GP. Although I'll, there are some recent investors that I've heard about that have given up some investments with no GP just because they've had trouble raising money as of late. But are, are you saying literally that there's no way that you guys make money other than you're essentially your LP position, like the money you put in, you get the return, but you're paying yourself zero in any capacity for the work you're doing other than 
just the returns on your the money you've invested. That is literally how we make money. And in no other way do we have any other margin support. So just to break it down, Matt, for those that might not be aware in your audience of how GPLP structure works, a GP, a general partner, essentially puts in at most 1% of the contribution to the capital. So if you're running a $100 million fund, a GP invests a million dollars of that $100 million fund. That GP then goes out there and raises $99 million from other sources. Those other sources, institutions, family offices, high net worth individuals, unaccredited investors, are what we term LPs, limited partners. Those limited partners have no decision-making power whatsoever in the process of running the, the business. In turn, for their 99% investment, however, they are uh, uh, benefited with anywhere between 75 to 90% of the profitability of that fund. The GP who's put in 1% cash is benefiting to the tune of 15 to 20% of the return. That is called the waterfall. Now that dividend return tends to be monumental compared to the low risk threshold they, that the GP has in the original cash that they're investing. Overcome by all of that 20% return are things that are called management fees. A general partner also receives somewhere between one and a half to two and a half percent management fees to run their business every year. And what that means is out of that $99 million that was invested by the limited partners, each year, approximately two million of that goes towards running that general partnership and that fund in general through salaries, office rent, supplies, human resource, software, technology, you know, operational expenses, SGNA in general. We don't do any of that. We take none of that. Uh, there are other fees associated with setting up a fund and it's one-time structure fees. And so you generally take one and a half to two and a half percent on top of that as well to pay for lawyers, uh, to develop the agreements, to set up the entire, all the paperwork to incorporate. And so we don't take any of that either. Um, we take zero <laughs> fees and we take zero sweat equity. And uh, that is the most disruptive part of our fund. So you're operating at a loss out the gate. We're, offering, we're operating at a capital expenditure investor investment strictly from our own uh, sources. It doesn't come from any hub, any parent corporation, or any investor uh, that, is, uh, that is helping to alleviate some of those burdens. It comes from us directly. Yeah. And so obviously the natural, and just if, if I can think through this with you, because it's the first time I'm hearing this, like the idea behind this, is it, wow, if I do this, people obviously know they can trust me more, much more likely because why would I ever, you know, do that where all of my profit and income is riding on my success? But is it in an effort like where, hey, I can, I can raise 5x, 10x more because of the trust place in the structure? Or? The idea originally you know, stemmed from how do we differentiate ourselves in the market and how do we let these unaccredited investors make more on their returns um, in order to, to be complicit with the market rate, right? Um, and also give them a position of ownership tacit ownership of the project because uh, that transparency is there that we talked about earlier. Um, but it morphed more into 
a uh, middle finger approach to what the industry mm -hmm. is today. Right. And uh, and when you look at the GP side of things, you know, if, if, if you have any money and you're able to table it 500,000, let's just say $500,000 to invest in the starting of a fund and you're able to put it towards a $50 million fund and that fund end up, ends up yielding, yielding you a million, a million and a half in returns every every year. Well, then you're just making too much damn money. <laughs> and so where is the support for the investors that supported you out that gate? And and so so that's what we set out to do is to restructure mm. the contribution and the uh, the consideration that a fund owner and a fund operator should be making versus that of the people taking the real risk, which are the limited partners. Well, and you're essentially placing zero value on what you're doing, which is just wild. Um, yeah. What what kinds of returns? And I know every project is entirely different, and markets change, and so on and so forth. So there's it's very hard to project if you can ever project. But like, what has that allowed your investors to experience in these past projects that w w compared to what would it have been if you had charged a traditional split? So if you look at the lifetime sort of trajectory of REITs in general, um, and, and most specifically what, you know, what you can table as a good REIT return. Generally speaking, if you're hit, able to hit that 7%, you know, dividend rate, you're, you're doing well. Um, from 2006, uh, 2008 to 2019, our average IRR was 21% to our limited partners, not into the fund but net to our limited partners. Of course, not net of taxes, long-term capital gains, qualified dividends, they're privy to their own tax records. Um, from 2020 to 2022, and I, I bifurcate those two time periods because COVID was a different beast within itself, we have still been able to yield an 11.5% return. So roughly mm. half of what we were doing prior to the COVID uh, lockdown. Um, and a lot of that had to do with supply, uh, supply increases in supply costs that you just couldn't predict, right? Um, in that same time period between 2020 to 2021, the average U.S. Retreat, uh, REIT was returning a minus 18% return. So, so that delta is really what we were looking to capture. And I can guarantee you anyone running those REITs, they were still driving their cars and, and swimming, um, you know, and, and, and sailing their same yachts. So right. uh, very little impact uh, in terms of their own personal incentives. Yeah. And so your returns were probably so impacted by COVID because you're more into the building and development. And so you're more impacted by the cost of materials as maybe, say, a multifamily investor that generally the buildings there, they might just be doing some light cosmetic touch-ups on 40 units or 80 units or something. That's exactly right. Our fund focuses a majority of its revenue cycle off of building projects, adding tremendous value to them, and then selling them for an increase in value in that ARV. ARV stands for after renovation value. That is sort of the I would say the the um, the floor to our fund. That is the anchor to our fund. Um, along with that, we have uh, a subset of our fund that focuses on buy and hold. And within that sector of asset class, we have multifamilies and single family homes 
that we either rent out or Airbnb. Um, and so that offers sort of an operating return to the fund in itself. And those funds are either shared with investors within that scope of our fund, or if uh, they're only owned uh, assets by the fund itself, it's shared within the principles of the fund. Interesting. So you talk about essentially you're giving ownership of these properties to your investors. And so they're then sharing equally in all the depreciation and cost segregation capacities of the projects? They are because when you look at the expensed sort of the, the, the pro formas of these projects, it takes into consideration everything. Uh, the only thing I would stop short of saying, which they are able to take advantage of, is items like depreciation. Uh, depreciation goes into our uh, rolled up consolidated statements, um, but they don't go into our projects. And that actually wouldn't benefit our investors because if we were to take a non-cash expense, we'd essentially utilize that non-cash expense to decay their profitability and we don't want to do that and they don't want to do that. Uh, effectively, what we look to do is put them in a better threshold of tax liability. And we do that through the use of what's called qualified dividends, which essentially are taxed at long-term capital gain rates as opposed to ordinary income rates. So you're looking at a delta of, you know, let's just say hypothetically 10%, 15% or 20%, depending on your tax threshold um, versus or your income level versus you know, 25 to 45% uh, ordinary rates. Yeah. And what sort of hold patterns do you typically see on your projects? Yeah. Uh, typically around 18 months. Um, hmm. And I would say, depending on the size of the project, it can go anywhere from 12 to 36 months. These are pretty quick projects then. They are. And if you look at funds, again, you know, not to dive too much into the typical fund structure, but with funds and REITs, you're looking at five-year holds with plus one, plus one options, which means that the fund goes out there with the notion of being of starting and finishing in five years, but they have the option to extend it by one year or maybe even two years. I've seen three-year extensions. Um, I've seen some funds that start at five years and end at 10. So, um, you know, typically the, the flexibility, the nuanced flexibility that we bring to the table with our investors is the other disruptive process is they don't have to commit themselves beyond a project. So once that project is exited, they can take their capital and their returns and utilize it how they wish, or they can reinvest it. Fortunately for us, we have a very strong reinvestment ratio. So I would imagine. <laughs> yeah. Based on the model, if you're providing those returns, they have that much flexibility and you're not collecting a, a nice cut off the top. That's, that's a pretty cool structure. So transitioning away from structure, like I, we love to talk about the mindset and those elements because I just think about a newer investor, which is typically the, the type of person listening to the show, to become what you've become might seem like a monumental accomplishment. I mean, you're running funds of millions of dollars, investing in major reconstruction projects. The average person doing a flip is a huge success and they should consider a success. But can you kind of walk through the mindset shifts and the things that you needed to become in order to so confidently walk into the type of business you're doing now? Yeah. First and foremost, everything is monumental, right? When you look mm -hmm. at it from start to finish. Um, 
I think the best way, at least for me, that's worked out and, uh, you know, it's, it's focusing on short-term goals and looking at things granularly and step-by-step. Um, I wouldn't be in a position to be a part of a fund that many of our team members have helped to put us in this position. Um, and, and they deserve most of the credit, if not all. Um, but, but the reality of it is, is that if we looked at it from start to finish, uh, before looking at it project by project and even more granularly, how do we improve this project with this step versus that step? We, we wouldn't even be sitting here today. So if you have the ability and the tenacity to get a successful flip under your belt, you're already making great strides. Um, for me, mm. it just came down to initially, what's the first developer that I can park my money with that I can trust and what project makes the most sense. And so I wasn't even doing any of the healthy, heavy lifting. Um, and then learning from that process, being on site, having as much transparency as I could, I effectively tried to utilize that for our benefit um, moving forward. Uh, so I would say, you know, from a mindset perspective, think small before you go big. Don't think big first. Uh, it becomes way too, uh, way too heavy and, uh, and probably demotivating. Um, so, uh, mm-hmm. you know, the very first deal that I remember being a part of uh, from a construction standpoint had to, to do with us making improvement in, uh, in, a, in a couple of bedrooms and a couple of bathrooms. Uh, they weren't even mm-hmm. full permit deals. Um, and because of the market transition and just the, the position of the capital structure that that property happened to be in, uh, we were able to, to, to be opportunistic with it. Um, so, so we grew, you know, our capabilities with our resources versus chasing resources, uh, to match your capabilities. And, and so, um, so I think that was a big step for us. And, and once we realized that we had that capability, uh, and we can make even further improvements, we started taking on really big, uh, you know, re- rehab processes and rehab uh, projects. I remember the very first time we took up our first ground up project. Uh, it was a single family home in Westtown. And uh, we, we questioned ourselves many, many times. Can we do this? Are we ready? You know, is that process something we're comfortable with. And we went through a lot of learning curves with respect to the permit process and the drawing uh, approvals. But we started realizing that a ground up construction is oftentimes easier than a gut (laughs) rehab. Um, Right. Right. So, you know, you learn from exploring. And even if we felt we felt that after running the numbers, even if we weren't as successful from a margin perspective versus some of our gut rehabs, this was a great learning module uh, to help put us in a position to create even further efficiencies and open ourselves up to those opportunities that we normally had to turn down. We had to turn down parcels in the past. Um, so it's really expanding your horizons, but, but in, a, in a manner that is conducive and in concert with your resources. That was a tremendous answer. Thank you so much. I would love to dive a little bit deeper into what you just said. You said um, sometimes a new construction could be easier 
than a rehab. Could we get into the details of why? Because I haven't done a new construction yet. I've rehabbed tons of houses. So, I mean, I'm just I'm extremely curious as to as <laughs> like, like, yeah, why should I be building on? new houses? And this other guy just told me to buy <laughs> land. So, like, now I'm just combining the two. And it's like, okay, how do, we, how do we make this work? <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. So, Tim, I think I can, I can best give it to you with an example, a real-life example that we went through. Um, we had two homes that we were building in West Town. One was a rehab and one was a ground up construction. Um, the rehab, uh, we, we purchased, so they were, I think they were two or three homes apart. And the, the parcel itself was purchased on a smaller lot. And typical city lots are 25 by 125s. And this city lot was a 24 by 80. So it already, the, oh, the parcel smart. itself already had inherent sort of concerns and constraints, right? That the city was going to look at from a permitting perspective. But the, the rehab property that we were going into was a 25 by 120. So just a little bit shorter than a, than a uh, full city lot. And so it had less constraints. The problem was, though, that we were adding an addition to that rehab property. And in doing so... It, mm -hmm. the drawings were approved by the city, um, but when they came in, they felt that the structure on the side of the addition may not be supportive enough, given the material that we've used, that the city has approved, uh, to, to not be disruptive to our neighbors. Mm -hmm. And so they had us run through months and months of structural engineering reports um, and facilitate a stronger structure by adding new material, changing materials, deconstructing to reconstructing um, in order to fit their new city code that apparently mm -hmm. didn't exist at the time of us getting approval for this drawing. <laughs> so in short, starting those projects properties that relatively the same time we ended up finishing that new construction i want to say around 60 days prior to finishing the gut rehab with the addition okay that actually makes so a ton what, of sense like i've, yeah, I've literally well, had to meet with aldermen like i had to meet the aldermen of the area just like so a rehab a house and i mean this is kind of completely unnecessary like why am i even meeting with you i have the designs, don't you have somebody that could look at this for you? Like, why are you looking at this? <laughs> it's the way Chicago works. You yeah. know, it's, it's a good old city. Uh, we've been in that same boat. So I can certainly appreciate that, you know, that, that sentiment. Um, but, uh, you know, it's every year uh, that is an election year, uh, you learn new things. <laughs> uh <-huh. laughs> yeah. um, and so, you know, and, and, and we're fortunate also to have... Um, the desire to grow in city in, in parts of the city that are expanding. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that's the really cool thing about Chicago is, you know, when you look at the cultures uh, and the different pockets of Chicago and the fact that it's, yes, it's somewhat landlocked by a lake, but it can expand as far West or as far South or as far North as you'd like. Um, that really differentiates us from some of the larger cities in the world. Uh, it's an exciting part of it. You see, you know, what Humboldt Park was, for example, 15 years ago to what it is today. Um, though, and being a part of that growth, the first mm -hmm. project you ever did. I mean, there was, there was a notion that we used to say 
I can remember as far back as 2010, we don't go west of Western and we don't go <laughs> north of North. Uh, and, and neither of those, I mean, it almost sounds unreal that, that those, you know, those sentiments existed at one point. Oh, for sure. Yeah, you're mm. seeing the skyline move westward now um, yeah. and in other directions, of course, but I feel like that's the most prominent. I thought it was nice that you mentioned Westtown a few times because that's obviously a yeah. growing area. So, Absolutely. Exciting <laughs> yeah. area. Oh, definitely. Gives you the best of both worlds, I think. I, no, that's what I really love about that area in general because it's close enough to downtown where you are there, but it's also far enough away where you know it kind of has a little bit more of a city or smaller city feel. Absolutely. <laughs> kind of. Absolutely. Kind of. <laughs> yeah, kind of. You can get you can get away. Yeah. 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 What are what are some of the things someone should be careful of? You know, some of the mistakes, pitfalls that you see going into ground up construction or yeah. in setting up a fund. So I would say the number one thing that you always want to make sure of is don't do estimates. You have to know your numbers airtight. Um, and then you have to account for those numbers being completely wrong uh, when you implement <laughs> them. Right? Um, so, so ARVs are very tricky because they're usually a moving target. You know, after renovation values, if you look at it, let's say you're starting a project in August of 2022, the value of that, you know, project sustaining itself or just being at the same level that it was when you originally set out. Uh, is is very unlikely. Actually, it's probably as improbable a virtue as you can imagine. Um, so within that scope, you have to take into consideration certain increases in value because the reality is that you won't be able to purchase it with today's ARV. You'll have to look at it as, as a profitability sector of tomorrow's ARV. Um, so you, you have to be very conservative in your approach of how you... Uh, extrapolate that information and how you apply that future ARV to the current project. Um, I've seen people come into projects without building a threshold of error. And that is a very risky scenario as well. Um, so always make sure you have some level of material miscellaneous or, um, you know, overage that you're accounting for. And if you can't account for that overage, more than likely the margins are too tight and you should, you should probably not do that deal. Um, I've also seen people raise money to start the project, to buy the project, um, and then say, we'll figure out how to, how to construct our capital once we've passed on, um, you know, a, a certain, once we've finished a certain, uh, gotten to a certain, um, you know, material difference in, in construction stage. Um, that proves to be very difficult. You run out of money and you're now at the tail end of that project. And now you're selling it at a liquidation price to another developer that has to put in much less to take it to the fin. You've done all the hard work and someone else is reaping the benefits. Um, so capitalization uh, being figured out before the start of the project is extremely important. Um, and then I would say, what you know, don't fall for the pitfall of being always being the best house on the block. Mm -hmm. um, yes, you want to make change. And it, I would be remiss not to bring up the fact that seeing that change is a big part of why I'm in the industry. But you never want to be the best house on the block when you sell. Um, you yeah. want to be, 
you know, the third best, or you want to be the newest best. Um, <laughs> it, you, you, being the first player, you have to understand that there will be some deficiencies in your investment um, because that area has a particular ceiling that people are willing to, to purchase for and comparables in the market will, will limit what a bank will lend on. So, um, so you always have to time yourself out um, and sometimes, you know, realize that the best value and a very good finish might be better than all the, the, the bells and whistles that you might be a little bit too early in that, you know, in that block for. Totally. I think this is really important. So essentially what you're saying is let somebody else, if you're in a neighborhood or, or a sector there, let somebody else gain that knowledge and take that risk for you. And then you just get up to that standard or somewhere close. Um, I was just at a conference and there were some speakers and they were talking about the difference between basically theoretical knowledge and revealed knowledge. And the revealed knowledge comes from the pain. And, you know, as investors, you know, the, the, uh, thing they were trying to tell us is don't don't put your money on somebody else to, for them to go get revealed knowledge, right? Let only invest in knowledge that's already revealed. And so I, I really think that's an important point you're making is is when someone else has done a project and you're just getting yours up to that speed, you, you already have a sense of this works. Um, and so you're taking away that's less exactly risk. Right. That's exactly right, Matt. Yeah, I mean, you're, if you're the first player on that particular block or that area, um, what you're doing is you're setting protocol and so um, you've essentially created a knowledge library for others to uh, take advantage of for free, right? Um, oftentimes mm -hmm. we're taught in yeah. our cultures is be a leader, be a leader, you know, be that person out there that starts the difference. Um, yes, in, at times that prove, that theory proves to be, um, you know, strong and, and, and powerful. But oftentimes if you could be the second in position um, to really push through, Mm -hmm. You're probably the one creating that catalyst. You're probably the impetus for the development or in that particular nature, the movement in that, in that, in that, in that setting. So, um, you know, case in point, one of our, uh, board members, um, sent over a video of this person dancing around and flailing in the middle mm -hmm. of a crowd. Um, and, and it's a really, really cool learning point. He's dancing, you know, probably, you know, people are looking at him and are embarrassed for him. And then about 15 to 20 seconds later, you see a second person come in and start his energy. Mm -hmm. And, you know, all of a sudden there's a crowd of people dancing with them. And the reality is that if that second person hadn't come in, mm -hmm. that crowd, nobody, nobody in the crowd would have considered to, to join along. Um, so while the leader set the precedence, the follower created the impetus for the movement. Um, and I think that's a very deep learning lesson for me at least. Totally. Yeah. And then, and then if you're the second guy in and everybody else still thinks yeah. you're crazy, at least you got company. Oh, no. There's a, there's so, a downside risk yeah. that you protected yourself from. Exactly. Oh, that's fascinating. So kind of as a corollary then, so essentially we're entering into a potentially fairly volatile time in our economy, maybe in the housing market, supply markets, et cetera. Given that you're raising, it sounds like a tremendous amount of capital, putting it to use. How are you guys either adjusting your margin of error, uh, those types of things to factor that the, the properties you're purchasing today might not 
be sold till right. 18 to Absolutely. 24 months. From you now. know, anytime you have such a shift, paradigmatic shift in uh, macroeconomic behavior, you have to consider all of those things. Um, you know, the good thing about Chicago is it doesn't sort of cater to the highs and lows of cities like New York, London, San Francisco. Um, you know, it, it has sort of a resonance to it that is more predictable in nature. Um, and so what we tend to do is we tend to focus on areas that perhaps people aren't necessarily there today, but where they will be in the next year or two. Um, that has sort of been the thesis behind our investments. Uh, we're always looking at B plus to A minus areas um, that eventually will turn into A minus and A plus areas. And that's, that's, that's always been sort of our strategy. Um, so uh, taking into consideration margin of errors for supply chain, growing our supply chain internationally, um, something that we started to do very heavily in 2017, uh, was starting to outsource supplies from international sources. Um, that is something that we, you know, were fortunate enough uh, to to be a part of, and that really helped us through uh, the global supply chain um, problems. Most particularly because we had already learned how to take in cargo, um, how to deal with port shortages and uh, um, things of that nature, and also we were buying supplies at much less the value that our counterparts over here were purchasing at. Um, and then also focusing on uh, revenue-driven uh, asset classes. So we've shifted quite a bit of our notion of development that used to be on single families more and more now towards multifamilies. We're doing it hopefully at price points mm -hmm. that individual investors can come in at and see them add them, you know, see that project add tremendous wealth to their personal finances. Uh, but at the same token, projects in congruency with other projects be large enough for a portfolio sector so that a family office or an institution can come in and say, yes, this is something that we would want to be a part of our asset portfolio as well. So expanding our buyer base um, and expanding our supplies, uh, supply sources, uh, along with you know, being very judicious in the areas that we invest uh, all help us, I think, fight some of these macroeconomic behaviors. Um, and the reality of, of it is in, in the city of Chicago, there's a tremendous supply shortage. You know, yes, interest rates are skyrocketing. Yep. Um, you know, inflation is at the highest peak that it's been in 40 years. But microeconomically, supply demand uh, caters to a bunch of things. It's not just, well, we raised interest rates. First of all, all the banks have to follow suits, Right. It's not necessarily that when the Fed raises rates, mortgage companies will will do the same. Um, yes, they have this year, but they've also brought them down with basis point increases. So there's not a direct correlation every time. And then the reality is, is that the, this was necessary from a, you know, uh, an economic perspective and a strategy. Uh, prices were just too high. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Driving inflation. Curbing inflation. I mean, housing mm -hmm. up 20 22, 25% in one year, um, that is not sustainable. And so, mm -hmm. you know, I think what happened here is there's going to be a small dip now. And that dip was very necessary to reset pricing and bring down that floor. Um, but the supply shortage and the high employment rates uh, are not indiv indicative of a recession. And so I think a reset was necessary. Um, mm -hmm. And we want to take advantage of that. We're in the buying mode 
And that reset is, uh, I think, valuable for our the direction of our fund. Oh, there's no doubt. As an investor, a reset, if nothing else, to make the days on market a lot longer, give a lot more time for opportunities. It's been wild how quickly you have to make decisions. I think it'll be nice for buyers and investors to have more time. Maybe Absolutely. you'll get better terms. Better terms uh, bring more buyers yeah. to the market and also uh, putting us in position where we can recalibrate these projects and, and these, uh, these properties uh, so that they are affordable uh, to the, to the people that want to invest in Chicago. So what is, what are you up to yeah. next 12 to 18 months? What's on the horizon for you? Yeah, we are on the hunt. We are on the hunt for projects. Uh, we are currently going through a raise with some of our supportive institutionals uh, and family offices um, uh, from an international perspective, as well as a out of state perspective. And I think that's one of the coolest things. We're bringing money into the state um, and into the country. Um, some of these investors have never invested in Chicago before. Um, so we're using sort of our, our current family office database um, and, uh, and creating new relations, which I think is really cool. Um, so while we go through that raise, uh, we are setting up our structures so that when we do our capital call, um, we are we are at a position where we can be as efficient as possible in spending that appropriately, uh, so that we can we can be efficient on the returns. So uh, a lot on the horizon in terms of multifamilies, um, but overall just investing in Chicago um, and uh, expanding our horizons. Uh, across to the suburbs as well. It's something that we've never done. And so we're excited to do. So we've gone from, from city <laughs> dwellers to, uh, you know, Illinois, state of Illinois dwellers in general. Um, and, and you never know, we might, uh, we might pop our way uh, down south to Indiana as well. So. Absolutely cool. tremendous. Um, Amit, if the audience wants to get a hold of you, maybe they're interested in being a limited partner or something along those lines, what would be the best way for them to reach out to you? Absolutely. Uh, my email address is a bit long. Um, our URL is www.ramagroupintl.com. So my email address is the best way to reach me. It is my first name, A-M-I-T, my last initial K, at ramagroupintl.com. And they don't even have to get in touch with me to talk about investing. Um, as long as it's real estate focused, I'm always responsible. There you go. If it, I love yeah. it, love it. <laughs> so, I mean, obviously you're working estate. on a really high level too. So, I mean, anybody in our audience that is not thinking of taking advantage of that, I would say that you're making a mistake. Uh, Mr. Amit Kapoor, um, we want to sincerely thank you for coming on our show and giving us a glimpse of your life and business and to everyone else out there chasing freedom. Freedom is acquired one action at a time. If you do nothing else, just write down one action that you got from today and make sure to implement it within the next seven days and share it with somebody you know, please, so that they can hold you accountable. And before you know it, you too will be living a life of freedom. Thank you again for tuning into today's episode, and we will catch you on the next one.